a Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Harriet, you always talk about trusting your blink, Mm -hmm. and I feel like it's so applicable in the case that we're going to talk about today, so I wondered if you would explain what you mean when you say... Trust, trust your, your blink. blink. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can't take credit for trust my blink or trust one's blink or trust your blink. It actually came from my mom. And she taught me this ever since I was a little kid where she said, you know, that first feeling, that first blink, it's like that first impression, that first gut feeling, trust it. And if something feels wrong, get out of this situation because the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to look like a fool, but the best mm-hmm. thing that will happen is you will be okay and safe. And I think it's that. And I think a lot of women, you know, feel that way, right? Trust your gut, trust, you know, what your body is telling you. And for my mom, the phrase is trust your blink. And it's that first blink. What is your body telling you? I mean, I've definitely been in situations where I should have trusted my blink and did well, not. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. College. Hello. Um, yeah, I, I think that like once um, I went to pick up a hard drive at a local house when, in that town. That happened like a month ago. It happened like two years ago. It's that's that, that story gives me the heebie-jeebies for sure. But that's the thing. It was after I started doing true crime. It was after arguably my blink had had a good workout and should have been stronger. Yeah. But I went into this stranger's house um, upstairs and he had a pit bull and a gate inside the house, an iron gate that locked behind us on the staircase, in the yeah. middle of the staircase because so he lived no in an old strategy. institution. Yeah. And I had no exit strategy and I just found myself going, I felt weird about coming in here. I didn't want to come in here. Now I'm in here and there's a pit bull and a locked gate and what the heck, man? I got to trust my blink. I know. And it feels like, too, is the older you get, the more you go, oh, I should have known better. And luckily, nothing happened. Well, let it be a lesson. I mean, it doesn't matter what authority anyone has over you. Trust your blank because sometimes the person that you think is safe is actually the most dangerous. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a lifetime. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we get into this story, I just have to tell you, I am recording from Vancouver because tomorrow I'm actually going on a cruise to Alaska. So excited for you. And let me say that after having researched this story, I'm a little nervous. I hope they are doing a roll call on the ship pretty frequently. I know. Well, we're ending in Anchorage where this story (laughs) takes place, which is worrisome. But I... But listen, I'm really excited to visit Alaska, but I do think there was a moment where I'm like on the flight coming here, mm-hmm. reading about this case going, oh, <laughs> God, no. really sets the scene. <laughs> it really 
<laughs> he does in a really well, intense way. Here's the good news. The good news is you're going to 2023 Alaska and we're going to be talking, let's go to the 70s. Let's, let's go, to, go the to, 70s. to the 1970s in Anchorage. And can there we get, is- wait, Can we get cons- like a weird, can we get like a fun little like um, uh, time machine? A Wayne's World, yeah. I want a Wayne's World time machine sound effect as we go back to the And take us to the 70s. Let's put on some great outfits. Let's put on some bell bottoms and let's check out the construction of the new 800 mile gas pipeline that is underway. 800 miles. Did you know, little known fact, did you know that um, Texas can fit into Alaska twice and that Alaska as a whole is one fifth the size of the United States? Like that's how big Alaska is. Alaska, I have something to say to you. That's too big. I'm saying it's too much. You're, I'm saying Alaska, you're perfect just the way you are. Let them live. <laughs> Let them live. Well, it's not perfect. They got to build this dang pipeline. They got to send out hundreds of people and millions of dollars. And suddenly, in the '70s, this is happening, and Anchorage is got some growing pains. And we've seen this before with these stories, where like there is a new industry that is rolling into town, and in order to support the growth. You need more everythings. Yeah, and I think also a lot of outsiders are now coming into this place that right. that aren't from there, right? And we're building, to be clear, we're building a gas pipeline. So I think there's like a lot of mixed feelings about all of this stuff happening right now, right? Oh, sure. But with the gas line coming in, it brings a lot of money, like you said, millions of dollars. It brings money to the workers, to the area. And, you know, there's a lot of disposable income at play here, right? Mm-hmm. People are making a lot of money doing this work. And um, the landscape and the demographic of Anchorage is changing. And so people are getting their wheels turning and they're thinking, huh, I have a really great idea for a business. A beautiful restaurant or um, strip mall? No. Well, more strip clubs than strip malls. Um, More strip (laughs) clubs than strip malls. Yeah. So here they are, you know, building the pipeline. And they're also going, hmm, I think there are people who want to lay pipe. So um, they're (laughs) building... Well, I'm trying to be delicate about it here. I think like a lot of these pipeline workers are men. I don't know if they come with their families or not, but here's the deal. I think these men just want some, you know, salacious entertainment. So they're going to build some strip clubs. There's an influx of sex workers. There's some drugs there. But what's crazy is there is an influx of sex workers. When you say that, it's because they're they're saying we don't have enough women to yeah. strip in these clubs, they are flying women free of charge. They're saying they're going to other places. They're recruiting them. They're flying them to Anchorage because there's not enough women there for these jobs. I, so I thought that, that was pretty crazy. So if that gives you any sort of idea of like what the demographics were before to now, I mean, it's pretty different. It's giving me like... um. It's giving me Oregon Trail vibes, you know, except like instead of like going out west to Oregon, you're going up to, you know, Alaska and like mm-hmm. instead of like buying oxen, you're buying condoms or like, like right. instead of like dying from cholera, you're going to die from STIs. Like it's just, I don't know. It's giving me <laughs> You've Oregon been bit trail. by a snake, but not Wrong that one. kind of snake. Go <laughs> get that one, medicine. I, this one is one-eyed. Um <laughs> <laughs> 
horrible, horrible. Again, okay, let's just be honest. Sex work is the oldest profession. This is, I'm not, you know, no shade of these sex workers, but clearly, like, there's a market there for it. And, you know, it's pretty common for these sex workers to come in, make a bunch of money, and then skip town leave. So seeing a person one day and then gone the next day is pretty common. For me, the idea of, like, staying there throughout winter when there is no sunlight, that's going to be a hard pass for me. But I think you're painting a picture of you you see someone and they become a regular in your mind and then they're just gone. But yeah. in all likelihood in your head, you can explain that away yeah. because they they weren't from here to begin with. Maybe it was time for them to leave. But in this atmosphere, some of the faces that are disappearing, it's not because they're leaving. And they will eventually be found. They just won't be alive. Oof. On July 17th, 1980, two power line workers are walking on a power line trail near Eklutna Lake, which is in remote Alaska. It's like 37 miles outside Anchorage. It's remote, so it's glaciers, it's trees, it's campgrounds. And while they're walking, they come across the skeletal remains of a young woman who to this day has not been identified. I mean... She's not been identified because what was left of her remains was decomposed and really hard Mm -hmm. to decipher who this person was. And just to put it in perspective, what they can glean from the forensic um, investigation on on this body is that she was a young woman. She was probably maybe even a teenager. And they see that she's wearing some handmade jewelry as well as high red boots. Um, And we do know there is evidence to support that she was stabbed in the back. And her body at this point is so decomposed that in order to sort of try to figure out who this person is, because again, they're going to try their best, is they actually have to reconstruct it to what she potentially might have looked like. Have you Um, seen this? It's so interesting because it actually speaks to how far we've come with our ability to do those reconstructions because I looked at the one they did then and then one that they've come up with now using because they still, like I said, haven't ID'd her, but like the one then it almost looks like a wax figure in a museum where like you could know someone that looks like that, but it doesn't really look totally like a person versus the one they have now where you're like, oh, that's a human being. It's really interesting, actually. Well, it's also interesting that she's wearing handmade jewelry and you'd hope Mm -hmm. that that could be connected to the artist or things like that. Um, And so they've, they've obviously kept her out in the public. They're trying to identify her. But what we're going to refer to her as is a Klutna Annie because that's where she was found. And based on all this information, based on the clothing they find her in at the time of her death, the police believe that it's very likely that she was a sex worker. Two years after the body of Eglutna Annie is found, it is September of 1982, and there's a couple hunters, and they're near the Knick River, which is north of Eglutna Lake. It's also very isolated. I think when you're hunting, you have your super senses on. Right. You are listening for any noise. You are trying to spot footprints in the snow. Your eyes and ears are working overtime. And I think because they're doing that, they see that there's a strange indentation in the snow nearby. So like, let's go check it out. And as they approach, what they see they think is denim. And as they get closer, they're like, yes, this is clothing. And underneath the denim, there is somebody's face 
You can't see the face. It's oh, wrapped in ace bandages. And they find bullet casings near this person's body. It's the body of Sherry Morrow. The fact that they're able to identify it, I just, I'm so grateful at this point. I know that sounds, but compared to Gluten Annie, you know, it's like to identify these bodies seems, especially because yeah. they're out in the wilderness for ages before they're discovered, right? So, well, not only do they discover her, but when they discover who this is, they are able to track the story more or less well, of how yeah, this came to be. Totally. Because on A&E's show First Blood, they actually interview Brenda Fowler, who is Sherry's friend who was with her that night. She's able to piece together what happened from her perspective. So Sherry and Brenda, they are both dancers at a strip club called The Wild Cherry in Anchorage, which, fun name, fun name. And it's November 1981. So this is a year, a little less than a year before her body is found. Um, this guy comes into the club and he's asking a bunch of women there if he can take their pictures. And he's actually saying that he's a modeling agent, which I got to tell you, I don't so believe. So many red flags I for that. I don't believe. Yeah. And he's saying, I'm a modeling agent and I'm going to pay you $300 to take your picture. Now, Sherry Morrow, she is this cute 24-year-old blonde woman and she hears $300 to take a picture and she's interested in. It's a good she's deal. interested. It's a good deal. It's a lot of money. And Brenda's blink at this point, I think, is going, something's not right about this guy. I don't trust yeah. him. And so she tells her friend Sherry, hey, don't go. Like, this guy seems off. I'm this sure he's weird. not a this modeling agent. Quiet. Something's off. Something's weird. And she asks, or she warns Sherry not to go, but Sherry's going this $300 just to take a picture. This is easy money. I'm going to go with him. And that is the last time anyone saw Sherry alive. Yes. And that starts a trend of more women right. disappearing afterwards and people going, Remember Sherry disappeared? Now this other woman, where's she? So Brenda's not having it. And she says, let's start a buddy system. Nobody leaves this club alone. Nobody leaves this club alone. And then another dancer, Tammy Peterson, goes missing. And some of the other clubs say, you're on to something, Brenda. We got to start a buddy system as well. Nobody leaves here alone. And this is great. Good, good on you, Brenda. This is great to have started this buddy system. I am positive that it saved lives. The problem is there are plenty of women in Anchorage that we talked about, plenty of sex workers that are not associated with establishments or clubs right. where a buddy system is not tenable. Right. They're still vulnerable to whoever this guy is, and he's out there, and women are disappearing. And I think it's important to know that at this point, when you're targeting a vulnerable population like this, it's not very easy the police are getting involved. Mm -hmm. It's not something that the police are like shining a light on. So like I said, I think with a vulnerable population, you know, there's probably not a lot of resources being funneled into this investigation of these two bodies of women who worked in the sex industry. Um, they really don't have any leads. Um, and now more women are missing. But the police aren't able to connect these two bodies that they found with these missing women. And so they don't believe these occurrences are in any way related at this yeah, point. Yeah, I think the big pivot with that, the yeah. big moment where all the dots start to connect is in June of 1983. It's June 13th. It's early in the morning. There's this guy driving his truck to work. And suddenly... 
a woman sprints into the street crying, half naked. She's got no shoes on, but she has handcuffs on her wrist and she is screaming. She's hysterical. He stops, of course, thank goodness. And she says, I am being chased and I need your help. She gets in and he takes her to a nearby motel where she's able to call the police. Now this woman's name is Cindy Paulson. And actually, I called her a woman. She's a child. She's a teenager. And when the police arrive, she is half naked and handcuffed still. And so the police then escort her back to the station to ask her some questions and get her story. And this whole interview is recorded so we know exactly what Cindy says and her voice when she says it. It's a, it's a child. It sounds like a child. It's, it's horrifying that this happened to anybody, but when you are listening to the voice of a child recount the horrors that she went through, it is beyond upsetting. You say to yourself, somebody not only did this to a woman, they did this to a little girl. And she tells the police her story, which is that a man picked her up the day before and he offers her $200 for a blowjob in his car and she agrees to this. So she gets in his car, but then snap, everything changes. He handcuffs her, he pulls out a gun at her, and Cindy is going, oh my God, I am in trouble. I am not, yeah. oh my God, this is not good. Yes, it's not good at all, and it gets worse and worse. Uh, don't ever go to a second location. We know that rule. She doesn't have much of a choice. Well, she doesn't he have drives her to his house. That, yeah. yeah, and once, going to his house, that's got to be a thing where in your head you're like, if you took me to an alley, I stand a chance. If you are taking me to, to your a home. personal location, and she's able to see everything, like it's not like he took her to a spot no, that he's he like walks protected. Her the house. She's home. not blindfolded. She's walking through the house and she's clocking things. She's like, oh, that's interesting. There's some laundry there. It looks like there's a, a woman's outfit. Does a woman live here too? Oh, that's weird. There's a toy on the floor. Are there kids that live here? She doesn't know what's going on, but well, he and takes her creepiness. to the she basement. Oh, and Talk this is the creepiest. This is, I mean, I'm sorry. If you're, if you're handcuffed and a guy has pulled a gun on you and then you walk into the basement and you see animal heads mounted on wood paneling, it's you're going, excuse psycho. my language. It's oh, the movie fuck. Psycho. I mean, oh, yes. Fuck. There's heads everywhere. Um, you know, clearly this person is a hunter. He has a bearskin rug on the floor and that is where he lies her down and rapes her. I mean, horrendous what's happening to this poor girl. After he is done raping her, he tells her there have been seven girls that he's presumably done this to before her. And he says, well, you're lucky because they stayed a week. He explains to Cindy, I mean, this guy's really loose-lipped, which also makes you say she doesn't stand a chance. Right. When they're talking, that can't be a good thing either. He says to her, well, you know, I used to pay for sex, and it, you know, it's 10, 15 minutes, and then it's done, and you know, he ends up feeling like a sucker. So he says, now my thing is, I'm just, I'm still going to pay you. You're still going to be okay, but I'm going to get my money's worth. Now I take control of the situation. I bring women to this house, and I do it for as long as I want. I do what I please. Then you go when I say you can go. And in fact, lucky you, Cindy. I've liked having sex with you so much that I'm going to do it one more time, but somewhere more romantic. I'm going to take you out to my cabin in the woods. I cannot imagine what is going through her head except, well, if you don't go to a second location, you sure as shit don't go to a third. I've seen where this guy lives. I've seen 
hunting trophies with <laughs> his name on it. Get me out of here. And so when she's telling this story to the investigator, her voice breaks and she says, I knew I was never going to come back. It's like at that moment, you, you're, I mean, it, my heart is breaking already. It's just my heart is in pieces at this point. So he puts her in the back of his car with a cover over her and he drives them to Merrill Airfield. The thing about Cindy is she's under this cover. And like you said, there's, it's almost in her favor that she says to herself, I'm not getting out of this. I'm surely right. going to die because there's an element of, what do so, I have to lose? What do I have to lose? What do I have lose? to lose? I better do absolutely anything I can. And I, her mind is working overtime. She's thinking, should I take the cover and lift it with my handcuffed right. arms and throw it over him as he drives? But what if he then crashes? We both just die is, is the end there. So she's kind of playing out, you know what? Maybe I'm going to have another opportunity. We are going to have to get out of this car at some point. So she slips her shoes off in the back because first of all, you don't want to have those high-heeled shoes on to run. But second of all, she's also sort of finding a way to leave her mark. If I am ever right. to get out of this, I can say, this is where I was, and I've got the shoes to prove it. They're in the back of this person's car. She's clocking everything. She's, you know, as soon as that cover comes off, she's looking at the airfield, looking at the vehicle, looking at anything she can and memorizing it should she make it out alive. But he still has a gun on her. What he now needs to do is set up a seat on this uh, tiny airplane that he can put her in to fly to the cabin. So he is now having to leave the car unattended and go to the plane. And she sees her opportunity. She That's sees it. it. She sees it. She bolts. She flies out of that car, no shoes on, running towards the highway. Half naked. Oh yes. My God. And he's coming after her. He doesn't let, let it go. He, he heads after her running, and he says, I'm going to get you. But she just doesn't even turn, just headed for that highway. It's her life on the line, and she gets the attention of this truck driver. Oh, my God. I knew we knew where that was going, but it's still like that relief you feel, like that, the relief I feel hearing that, that she's able to, to wave someone down, and they stop for her. Yes. Thank goodness. <sighs> Obviously, the police are called. They come. They are hearing her story. And, I mean, it's, it's an incredible story, as is. And the police are going, this is, this is crazy. There's, this might be too crazy to be true. But Cindy is insistent. Her story doesn't change. She is incredibly smart. I mean, Quinn had mentioned how she was dropping clues, dropping her shoes to make sure that she was leaving her mark. I mean, she did that from jump. She did that from the beginning. She actually yeah, was on and her- and it's not hazy. It's like- No. You, you want me to clear tell you where I was? This is the interior of the house. This is the interior of the car. This is the make and model of the plane. She- committed to she memory, knows. all these details, it doesn't sound like somebody's making something up when they no, know that but also, level. But also, she's making sure she's collecting evidence every step of the way. In fact, she was on her period during this assault, and she kept her tampon in so that her hope is that any DNA that has gotten inside her is preserved by this tampon. Mm -hmm. And so they bring her to the hospital. They give her a rape kit. They 
they do see bruising, they see tearing, which is obviously consistent with a sexual assault. Um, and then because she has all this information about the plane, all this stuff, they take her to the airfield so she can actually be there and identify the plane she was going to be put into. And she does. And mm -hmm. they, they see this plane and it belongs to the local baker, Robert Hansen. Now, this is also corroborated by a security guard at the airstrip, her whole story. So he says he saw Robert Hansen too. He actually took down his license plate number and the car belongs to Robert Hansen. So all of the signs point to Robert Hansen. That's the guy's car. That's the guy's plane. Uh, no question. Everybody going, this was Robert Hansen. So of course they do the next thing you do, which is bring in Robert Hansen for questioning. And Carrie mentioned that he's a baker. He is like a tiny, quiet glasses. He has a stutter. He's, He's giving very me soft Kevin Spacey in Seven. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's a good um, callback to someone that had that kind of quietness but was very menacing. And I imagine that this is a guy that um, by all public appearances, you would not use the word menacing to describe. They wouldn't necessarily envision this guy being their guy. I mean, he's also, in addition to being their local baker – they buy coffee from the guy. He's also a family man. He has a wife and two kids. And his wife is known to be a pillar, really, of the community. Mm. She goes to the local church. She teaches kids with learning disabilities. She's this very, quote, good woman. And then he's got these two kids that are wild about him, and he's wild about them. It It's bizarre, it's I think, for computing. the police. Well, I think also, too, I mean, let's – Let's just be very clear. There's a lot of prejudice in the police community against sex workers. So they're seeing this sex worker tell this story, this young sex worker telling mm -hmm. the story, and they're seeing this guy, and they're going, this isn't matching up in my head, so there's that. Right, but when they bring him in, it it <laughs> it speaks to what Robert uh, thinks about the whole situation. He says something very telling because they say to him, you know, we're investigating you for raping this sex worker, and his response to that is, you can't rape a prostitute, can you? Um, yeah, you can, and you did. Robert. And you did. You of all people should not have to ask that question. You were there, Robert. You know what you did. But here's the other twist. Robert Hansen, who they have all this evidence now stacked against, has an alibi. He was with his friend John Henning from 11.30 to 5 a.m., they were talking fishing. They were eating pizza. So here they are. They have the alibi confirmed, and they have the story from one teenage sex worker. Police seem to still be raising their eyebrows at Robert because they're going, hey, all right, well, we have all this information about his home. We'd like to search your home. And you know what Robert says? Come on in. No problem. No problem. Here's the deal, though. They start to look through his home, and Cindy's description of it is pretty dead on. In fact, it matches it exactly. They notice the wood paneling she talks about with the animal heads, and they also see the bearskin rug that she was raped on. So if you're if you're looking at this case, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, as a prosecutor, she didn't guess. What she was didn't in that guess basement. what was in that basement. No. So you believe her that she was there, and I think at this point, 
in order for the DA to prosecute this case, they have to sort of weigh their options, right? Mm-hmm. They have this story from an underage sex worker claiming rape and abduction. And then they have three upstanding male community members who are married, have families, have a whole, you know, life in Anchorage. And so who's the jury going to believe? Probably the three men, although that's wrong. <laughs> That is wrong. And when they're in Robert Hansen's house looking around and seeing that this house matches up with Cindy's description, they're kind of poking around. They don't find anything more than the fact that it matches the description. But one thing that gives me the heebie-jeebies is that they are checking the basement. They're looking around and Robert is there. He's watching them. And they lift the panes on the ceiling To see if anything's there, they go, lift one, nothing. Lift another, nothing. And if it's a movie, what Robert knows is that they're right next to a pane where he is hiding a pistol in his basement above it. And if they poke it, that pistol's going to fall. But they do just the ones to either side of it. It is a close call, but they don't find it. And so they just let Robert Hansen go. I don't want to give the impression when we're talking about this that this was a group of police that all saw this underage sex worker and said, we don't believe you. Because that's not exactly what happened. There was definitely Detective Greg Baker, and you have Glenn Flothy. Wait, that's so confused. That's so confusing. We have Robert Hansen, who's a baker, and the lead detective is Glenn Baker. It's very unfortunate. It's very confusing. Okay, moving on. He and Glenn Flothy hear... Cindy out and they both are like I have a feeling that this is a true story I there's there's it, it does not leave them once they find out that Robert Hansen has an alibi they're not dropping it in their heads they're just like we need to figure out another angle to get at this yeah but they don't drop it they keep looking they don't put that file back in the cabinet Well, is it more of the issue that they can't prosecute because they don't have, quote, like a perfect victim? They don't have someone who they're going to, you know, like, is is that sort of more of the issue? Well, the issue's the alibi. So what, but what they're saying to themselves is right now we can't move forward, but we don't like the look of this guy. And we don't like this story given what has been going on around us. So what we're going to do is start really looking into who is this guy? Who's Robert Hansen? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So we've talked about how Robert Hansen is a baker. He's a pilot. He's an avid hunter. He has friends and neighbors who corroborate alibis. Um, but this guy's got a past, which is not looking good. A decade earlier, okay, t- about 10 years ago, Robert was arrested for attempting to kidnap Susan Heppard, who is a real estate agent. He apparently sees her downtown. He's like, oh, I like the look of that lady. He follows her home and he pulls out a gun and he tries to force her into his car at gunpoint. Luckily, Susan has a roommate at the time. And so the roommate sees what's happening, calls the police, and the police get there before things get out of hand and Robert flees. But that was not his only uh, foray. Like, that doesn't work. He's just going to try again. And this time, he goes after a young sex worker named Patricia Roberts. He pulls out his gun, and he takes her from the Nevada Tavern in downtown Anchorage to Kenai Lake. That's an area just south of the city. And once they get there, he threatens to kill her if she does not cooperate with him. He ties her up. He rents a motel room, gets her into the room, and rapes her. And he tells her, he's like amazed afterwards. He's like, that was great. I cannot wait to do that again. How does she flee this? Does he just let her go after this? He does. He does. He says to her, I'm going to let you go if you do everything that I tell you to do. And she does, and he lets her go. And he lets her go, and she goes to the police, and she tells them this story. And the police are able to connect him, obviously. She's able to identify him. It's Robert Hansen. And Susan is also able to identify this guy as her potential kidnapper. So he is charged with both crimes. But for some reason, I don't know why the prosecutor decides to do this, but he decides to bundle these cases together. My assumption is maybe he doesn't have enough evidence for one and he's using two together to like uh, to maybe give a motive or a pattern of events that would allow for conviction of both events. Um, but they ended yeah, up they must a have deal. not thought they'd be able to get these to cases try them where they wanted them to be because there's no good reason to do this deal, but it well, got they're done. they're two separate. Well, I'm also, you know, I mean, this is conjecture. We don't know for sure what the prosecution is thinking, but I do imagine, you know, trying a case against this real estate agent for attempted kidnapping they have eyewitnesses and then they have this sex worker who it's just her word against his i'm wondering if by them trying them together it strengthens the sex worker case so they're able to get convictions on both either way it doesn't actually go to trial because they end up doing a plea deal with him where he is going to serve five years for the assault with a deadly weapon against susan heppard for holding her at gunpoint and then they would drop the charges against him for the rape of patricia drop the rape. they're dropping the rape charge altogether in exchange for a no contest plea, which means it's like the same effect. It's effectively the same as saying, hey, I admit guilt, but he doesn't ever formally admit guilt and he can't be sued in a civil case. I think that the thing to take away from this is that Robert 
is watching all this go down and saying to himself, okay, I see. So there's certain people like real estate agents that even the attempted crime I'm getting in big trouble for. And then there are sex workers who he actually committed the crime that he is getting off seemingly scot-free. But there really aren't any repercussions for it. No repercussions. And I think for that, it's like very much evidence of like who to attack and who not to attack in the future. You know what? I made, I did. I made this note that um, APD detective Ron Rice, I said this and I wrote it down because I was like, this is insane. insane. And he said, I'll tell you one goddamn thing. We taught Hanson to kill. When we didn't put him away for a long time, we taught him to kill. We not only taught him to kill, we taught him who to kill. Way back in 72, we told him it's all right to kill whores because nobody gives a shit about whores. I think it Uh, also just like- Some choice language from Ron Rice. You know, I think if he could go back, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I think we don't love the language, but frankly, I think I couldn't agree more with the sentiment. He's not wrong. And really- All told, in this whole scenario, he ends up really only serving a year and then he's just back out. So that's what happened to Robert. That's the big lesson he learned. And just a few years later, four or five, it's 76, and he gets arrested for shoplifting a chainsaw, which also gives me, knowing who this guy is, the heebie-jeebies, because bakers don't use chainsaws. This is going to be actually his third felony conviction because I forgot to tell you. He also set a school bus depot on fire. And it was back, uh, this is before he lived in Alaska. This is where he went to school as a kid. And it was totally one of those people picked on me. Uh, I had, you know, a stutter and acne. So I'm going to light the school bus depot on fire. And in this particular case with the chainsaw, the judge is looking at this guy's history and he goes, this guy really needs to be isolated from society. He's dangerous. He's going to do stuff again. You got to give him the max for this five years. But it doesn't work out, and Hansen is back out on the street. But I did want to say that if that judge in that case had gotten his way and Hansen had stayed behind bars, even for that chainsaw, there would have been a couple of folks alive that are not today. It's so hard. It's so hard because you also, I mean, you can't jump from shoplifting a chainsaw to murder. That does feel like two separate charges altogether. Sure. I think I when you look think at there the sum so total, many, the sum total, you look at the sum exactly total right. of his, of who this guy is. And I, and I would assume if the judge is saying that, if this judge is, his you blink know, was going off, his blink I was going off. And I'm curious, I, from what I imagine, there probably wasn't a whole lot of remorse coming from Robert Hansen at this point for the judge to say something like that. No, I think, I think remorse is something you will not see from this man. And so detectives Greg Baker and Glenn Flothy, they have all of this information. They have his priors and they start to connect the dots. They see that this guy has a history of violence against women. He has a history of targeting sex workers and the police have found a backlog of missing sex workers and those bodies of those sex workers found in the kind of place where Robert would potentially have a cabin. So it's telling more of a story and it's getting a little bit more clear in focus. So what they do is they take everything they do have, this sort of stack of files I picture, and they head on over to the FBI and they're like, knock, knock, knock. Um, We think that this is a real thing. We think that this guy's killing people and it we might think be this is a real thing i hope that's what they people. said hey, i think that's what FBI, they said exactly we have a real thing here and i need <laughs> you <laughs> alert <laughs> alert there's something real happening we need all the letters on board f b 
I. We need John Douglas. John Douglas is, speaking of letters, he's that character in HBO's Mindhunter where he knows what's he's up. He's the one he's, that, he's yeah. the like, uh, he's the guy that gets into the minds of these yes. serial killers. He knows what's up. He can profile them. He like, he's a, he's he, a yes, genius. Yes, he invented these profiling techniques. And when he looks at it, this guy has a sick sense for this stuff. He looks at these files and he's like, you know, I bet the guy doing this is somebody low self-esteem, probably somebody that, I don't know, has a speech impediment. That blows my mind. That blows You're like, my mind. So it's Robert? Like, that's crazy that he knew that. The fact that he says a speech impediment and Robert has a stutter feels crazy to me. Well, what's crazier is you got to imagine these detectives hearing that and then being like, yeah, he has an alibi. Oh. So, yeah, they don't have him. They have his alibi. However, they do have enough information to get a search warrant for his house. And they hope that they can find some more physical evidence that would support some of this stuff that Cindy is saying, that maybe it's stashed away. Maybe it's something that they couldn't find when he was mm-hmm. following them as they were looking through his house earlier. So on awkward. October, <laughs> very awkward. You know what? I don't love snooping through someone's house when they're watching me. Just as a, just as like a tip. It's not fun. So on October 27th, 1983, the police call him into the station for further questioning. They want to ask him some questions, but mostly what they're trying to do is they're trying to get him away from his house so they can do like a full search without his knowledge so he doesn't have time to hide anything. But I like that they're like, you know what, as long as we're bringing yeah. him in, let's have some fun with it. Let's, well, yeah, uh, because you know, they know this guy, something's going on with this guy and they got to get as much information as they can. I mean, also, they don't want to waste a trip to the police station. He's coming all the way over there. Let's get as much done as we can. You know, two birds, one warrant. So at the station, they have this pile of folders with his name. They have a map on the wall um, with his house marked. And then they have where all of these missing women worked downtown. And it's not that they have all this information compiled like for the investigation. It's, it's totally, a psych out set. It's like I imagine the person being like, well, what would really mess with him this time? And they're like, ooh, put an asterisk there. Put his house there. You know, like I imagine they're like- Picture of the bakery. Yes, like, yes. They're like, and I imagine like pictures of the women are next to them. Like I just imagine they're trying to set the scene to get him as off of his, you know, front foot as possible. And I'm sure just- well, the little I know about Robert is I feel like they called him into the police station and then he probably told his family some bogus reason oh. why he has to beat oh, it out of the house. What he doesn't realize is then everybody shows up at his house and Could his family's Could you imagine that there. surprise? Could you imagine the police being like, we're here? Oh, oh, Hi, what are you hi. here for? We just need to There's search your house. We can't really talk to you about children. it. lovely wife and children. Oh, awkward, awkward. So awkward. And they're not, they're not doing a casual search anymore. They're not looking under the sofa. They're tearing apart. The house. They're going through closets. They're taking out insulation. And so team one is over at Robert's house doing this. And team two is over at the station talking to Robert, who is asking for a lawyer. So the police are searching, and it's not going that well. And they've gone through the house. They're not finding anything that's going to help them in their case. And then they find the stairs to the attic. They go up to the attic, and they are, like Quinn said, they are going at it. It is basically HGTV demolition day. They are tearing into everything. There are There's insulation coming out of the walls. I imagine like the future mesothelioma ad would be like, oh, if you <laughs> or anyone you know looked Search in Robert, Robert Hansen's, Hansen's house in the 70s. <laughs> yes, you might be at risk for mesothelioma. So they're tearing through this attic and then they find a bunch of rifles. 
There are more than a dozen of them, which by the way, if you are a hunter, you have your rifles you don't locked away. Rifles. You don't hide your rifles. Why the hell are you hiding rifles? It's not a good look. And then it gets worse because then they find the jewelry. They find bags filled with jewelry, almost like trophies he's taken from his victims. They find aviation maps with markings all over them. And upon further investigation, the police have these guns. They're searching them, they're testing them, and they find that one of the guns matched the bullets found near Eklutna Annie and Sherry Morrow, the same .223 caliber cartridge. I think what's really crazy in this moment is this aviation map they find. They're not sure what to make of it. Obviously, it's like, bag it, bag it, take everything you can. And they bring the map to an Alaska state trooper, and they're like, okay, this is an aviation map. Can you show us where you found that body of Eklutna Annie? And the trooper says... Sure, but you already have it marked right there. And upon looking at this map closer, they realize there is, in fact, an asterisk next to where they found Eklutna Annie. Not only that, there's an asterisk where they found Sherry Morrow's body, too. And in this moment, I think all the air just gets sucked out of the room because they realize there are asterisks all over this map. And they are not points of interest. They are graves. And there's 21 of them. So just to, just to sort of like, let's, let's take a knee and let's see of all the things that we have against Robert Hansen. Okay. We have a murder weapon. We have mm. the jewelry, a.k.a. the trophies that trophies. it's possible we're going to connect to all the victims. We have a map with 21 locations around Eklutna Lake and Kinnick River. We have those two that match existing bodies found. Um, And then we also have Cindy Paulson's story. It feels like the evidence is stacking up and up and up. And the one thing we're missing, the one thing that's not adding up, is that this guy is a freaking alibi. Right, right. He has this alibi that John Henning has corroborated. How could he possibly have been uh, talking fish and eating pizza with John while he was kidnapping and raping Cindy? Well, here's what happens. While they're going through the house, it turns out that John Henning's wife, she's kind of a, a nosy neighbor. and She's like, she's like Cratchit. I heard they're the going name? by the house. Ha- oh, yeah. Totally. She's like looking out her windows. Love her, she, by the way. She's Love peeking her. out the window. She actually, she drives up and she's kind of like, what you what doing? The heck? What What are they doing? And the police know who she is. So they're like, Oh, um, by the do way, think, wait, do you think they husband, know who she is because she's like constantly calling and being like, so I saw some, I saw some teenagers, some shenanigans some going shenanigans on down the, the block. And the police are like, oh, this woman again, my God. John Henning's wife. wife. She's always doing time. this. Hey, what are you guys doing over there? <laughs> well, when she drives up and, and they do have occasion to chat with her for a minute and they're like, you know, your husband, John gave Robert Hansen an alibi for a night in question and some pretty serious allegations. And to her knowledge, I don't think that necessarily her husband told her what Robert told him, but she now goes home and says, I don't know if you're lying for your friend or what, but the allegations against him, they might be a little more serious than you're thinking they are. And so John Hennings, realizing this is maybe he got himself into more than he knew, he admits that he provided a false alibi. 
And the thing about it is he doesn't really get punished. He gets kind of a slap on the wrist where the judge is like, well, you're probably pretty humiliated. That seems like punishment enough. Um, is it? I don't know if Cindy feels that <laughs> I way. I think Cindy, Cindy should, I think I Cindy should get to victims. decide John Henning's punishment. I would agree. I would agree because I got to tell you, that feels mm, – I don't know if his humiliation – would suffice in the court of law. But that's just well, me. But that's just me. Well, the me. good news is he doesn't have an alibi anymore. Alibi he has an alibi. Bye-bye. <laughs> and with his alibi gone, it's game on for the prosecution, right? This whole facade shatters. Anything that was stopping them from like fully charging him is gone. So he's formally arrested. He's charged by the police. And it feels to me like this little alibi was like this little cork in the serial killer dam. And once they uncork this, it's like the waters run free. The charges flow heavy. Let's get this guy. I think at this point, the police have a bit of a vendetta against the guy. Like I imagine... They don't want him to go to trial. They want him to confess everything because he's given them the runaround. They've they've not charged this guy. I think it's a little bit of like shame on us. Let's make sure and this cops. guy goes away. Yeah, you let's mess make sure with this guy our goes donuts. Away. You get us where it really hurts. I don't know if they mess with their donuts, Quinn. It's the baker. <laughs> like, I, where I, are they going to get their donuts now? This is. I, I imagine this guy is baking bread. I don't think he's baking donuts. I'm going to tell you right now. He's not cheerful enough. I don't for, think he's frying okay. dough. I think he is baking. Okay, that's how I feel about the whole thing. Okay, okay. and you can quote me on that. But I think, <laughs> listen, they're pissed because again, this guy has given them the runaround. So mm-hmm. it's not enough to prosecute this guy, charge him, wait for trial. They want to make it hurt. They want him to confess to everything. And they're going to use that beautiful little map that he so conveniently marked up for them. So the assistant DA, Frank Rothschild, he sits down with Robert and they start the interrogation and he starts questioning him. And listen, we all know if someone reads you Miranda rights, you just ask for a lawyer. So he's not budging. He's not saying a word. Robert is just sitting there kind of waiting for his lawyer to show up. But Frank Rothschild is like, I've got this map and it's going to make you crack. So what he does is he pulls it out, sets it on the table, and points to it, and he says, you know, Robert, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait until the spring thaw when all the snow around Eklutna Lake and Knick River melts away. Then I'm going to go out here. I'm going to bring some tracking dogs. I'm going to go to every spot you marked on this map, and I'm going to look for bodies, and I'm going to look for bullet casings. And he just waits. It's kind of like, what are you going to do? Your move, Robert. What would you like us to do? I love this quote because the DA Rothschild, he later says that he, he tells this to Robert and he just like sees his face change. Change. He sees him get caught, which I think after this investigation, after the time and energy and information put into this investigation, this had to be such a sweet moment for him. He says Mm -hmm. his face got really red and literally the hair on the back of his neck stood up. And that was when he changed to my eye from Bob the baker to Bob the serial killer. And all of a sudden I'm looking at this guy thinking, there's the guy who killed all these people. Robert oh. Hansen's been got. He has been caught. Yeah. It's done. Oh, oh my God. He's and not going to risk waiting for the spring thought. He's just, he's literally going, crap, I've given you a map of where all my all victims the bodies are. are. Wow, he must really hate asterisks at this point. So <laughs> instead of fighting, instead of going to trial, Robert Hansen confesses. 
to the murders and he explains to the police in exact detail what he did. And I do think one of the reasons he does that, one of the reasons he folds here is not that his goose is already cooked, but the only thing Robert really has left is to protect his wife and kids. And I can't even I, think that he's protecting anyone. Like it's to me, anyone the other than himself. Like yeah, you've I know, been doing this for years and you now you're worried about your wife and kids. Well, I think, yeah, he's a very selfish person. And I think that he sees them as real people. I don't think he saw his victims as real people. So he says to himself, if I do this, I want to keep my name um, as out of the press as is possible. I don't want to become a household name. And it seems like in this moment, he just decides to cooperate. He sort of gives up the fight so that it will in his mind, ideally progress in a manner that is as quick and painless as it could be for someone who sure deserves slow and painful. Yeah. When Robert Hansen finally starts this confession, he ends up telling police just exactly what went on inside his mind and how this escalated. And where it began was that he was going to drive after he got off work uptown and he'd watch the sex workers go up and down the street. And just watching them gave him some sort of sexual charge and excitement. And he thought about them as people that he could do things with that he couldn't do with a, quote, good one. Well, where did he learn that? he starts to divide, right, (laughs) he starts to totally divide women into these two categories. And there's your, your wife or a woman you would date, a good woman. And then there is a sex worker. And an act like oral sex, for instance, that he's very interested in, you don't have that with a good woman. You certainly wouldn't debase your wife doing something like that. So there's these sex acts that, in his mind, I can only have with a sex worker. So then what he would do is he would target the bad ones, his quote, the bad ones, his, in his mind, the sex workers, he would take them to remote places outside of Anchorage, outside of the city. Um, sometimes he would drive. Other times he would take them to his private plane and he would fly them there. And in some instances, he would rape the women. But if they cooperated, he says that he returned a lot of women to Anchorage. And he said, do not contact authorities. And they didn't. He says that he raped more than 30 women in the 12-year span between 1972 and 1984. If for what it's worth, I believe him. I think that, and we saw that happen. We saw, uh, you know, that initial trial, he raped a sex worker right. and then let her go. I think that there's a feeling in his head of, it's my word over theirs and I already have that on them. I don't think he ever thought he would get in trouble and they're only becoming more expendable as human beings in his mind as he's doing these things to them because he does them he gets away with it. He feels powerful over right. them. And he knows that he can increase the voltage, so to speak. And I'm not, and this is not me victim blaming. I want to be very clear. But I think these sex workers didn't feel like they were going to be believed. So they never of course told not. anyone that they raped Look what were happened raped. to Cindy. Exactly. Cindy was abducted, found half naked and handcuffed. And it took them a while to believe her. So it's like you have these 30 women that he says he raped in this 12-year span. And some of them, I obviously, he killed. But some of them, he didn't. He says he let them go back to Anchorage. And they never 
reported him. So here he is. It's almost like it's this fulfilling prophecy where he's not getting told on. He's not getting accused. He's going, oh, this is a get out of jail free pass, right? Right. And he's setting up this narrative of good and bad already. And then when you think of he's already going in that direction, and then he further separates them by saying, yeah. if these bad girls follow the rules, they're yeah. going to live. But if they're really bad, if they're really misbehaved and they don't listen to the rules, that's when something's going to happen to them. And Glenn Flothy says, what happens if they don't do what you tell them? And he says, they they stayed, which is so uh, just it's so chilling. chilling. Well, it's again, it's like what we've talked about with many of our survival cases. It's like, do you do you, are you agreeable or do you fight? Right. And I think there's no right or wrong answer, but it's like these women that fought, you know, he killed. There was no rhyme or reason to it. Cindy fought, she got away. Yeah. Um, and you have some of these other women that fought for their lives and lost them. He says that the whole thing started because when he was a kid, he felt really rejected by women because he had this bad acne and this stutter he was made fun of. Anytime he was asking a girl out, she was rejecting him. And so he puts himself in this position where he then says, it's okay to kill some women. It's okay yeah. to kill the ones that are, quote, bad girls because they're not full people. They're inferior to me in some way. It's like with that old adage, men are afraid that women will reject them and women are afraid men will kill them. It's mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. FBI profiler John Douglas wrote about Robert Hansen in his book, Mindhunter, inside the FBI's elite serial killer crime unit. And he says that he believes Robert would take the women. He, I mean, he one-ups it in a way, right? He says that Robert would take the women, rape mm -hmm. them, strip them, then he would let them loose so he could hunt them with a gun or a knife. And this does somewhat track with Robert's behavior because sure. he does have this unhealthy obsession with hunting and he's very good at it. I mean, look at his trophies. Mm -hmm. It also tracks with the forensic evidence, right? Most of the known victims have wounds in their backs, whether it be a gunshot wound or a stabbing wound, which does imply that they were killed while they were running away. Yeah, and I think they were able to like look at where these bodies were and say she started here, but she's buried here. Right. That doesn't make any sense. If he landed here with this person, how did they end up here? And there's this article by Paul Sutherland that says it talks about how he would strip them at gunpoint and make them run. And he goes even a step maybe further than John Douglas to say he believes that what would happen is that Robert would even get pleasure out of letting a woman think she had escaped and then surprising her again and having her run again. This is very, and, it reminds me of the short story, The Most Dangerous Game. Do you remember reading absolutely. that in junior absolutely. high? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And it's this, this idea that they would run and run and run until they were weak, until they were cold, until they were finally like the fun was gone for him. And, and now I'm going to shoot you. 37 miles away from civilization. These women had no chance. Didn't have a prayer. Didn't have a prayer. Some of his uh, thought to be victims that have not necessarily been proven to be, uh, one of them did just fall off like a ledge and, and freeze to death, um, you know, d die by the elements. Because if you're stripped naked and you're being left to run for your life, the chances that you're going to make it out of that situation alive, whether someone shoots you in the back or not, are nil. Now, we have John Douglas's um, assertion that he was hunting these women. Did he ever fully admit to that? 
I don't think that he openly characterized I got pleasure out of hunting for them. I don't think he'd have characterized it as such. We Mm -hmm. do know stories about him bringing a woman and the way that he would probably characterize it is that we fought and she tried to get away and I shot her. But when you are watching this pattern of bodies and it is... It's telling another story. And another strange thing he does in a lot of cases is dresses them after they've been killed. So Mm -hmm. he's stripped them, they're running, they're shot. Then he goes and dresses them and buries them, which is a behavioral pattern that has to do with treating the bodies like uh, a bearskin rug, like a a deer head on your wall. You're doing something post-death to commemorate it as this body is a trophy. You know, this is my prey. So in all, I have to say, Robert Hansen, he confesses to 17 murders and he even helps the police find some of those bodies. But in all, only 12 victims' remains are ever found. But like you said, it's like we he admitted to 17. We only found 12. I mean, he, these are in remote we places. We 21 asterisks. Asterisks. <laughs> asterisks. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right. We see 21 asterisks. It's like, what are those for? And I mean, listen, these are out in the wilderness. There are animals. There are, I mean, you don't know how these bodies, you don't know. Absolutely. As a way to avoid 17 trials, uh, what happens is that Robert pleads guilty to four of the 17 murders in Anchorage Superior Court. Now, he is sentenced collectively to 461 years plus life in prison by the judge. Now, Alaska does not have the death penalty, but I know that when they were looking at this case, there were a lot of talks, should we reinstate it? Just for this guy, just for you, Robert. Judge Ralph Moody of Superior Court says about this, I cannot think of a bigger indictment of society than we have here. This gentleman here has been known to us for several years. We've turned him loose several times. The next sentence I'm going to say fills me with rage, and I think it will to you. (laughs) Robert requested that he be imprisoned out of state to lessen the chance of running across people who knew him or his victims, and that his case be kept out of major media. Robert, I don't think you should get any request granted. It is sick. It is sick for you to make a request like that. The families of these poor people, it's like he doesn't want to run across the victims. Hey, maybe you should have thought of that before murdering people, before raping people. Well, and that's true. There was just so many people that he harmed that the odds that he'd be in prison and one guy'd go, I used to date a girl you raped or killed was just so high. Totally. And And it's like, yeah, you think you deserve those protections? Get real. What what kind of protections did your victims have, Robert? Go pound sand. Um, But of course, this case does get into the press because it's really salacious. This is a neighborhood guy who's who's charged with 17 murders under everyone's noses. It's wild. And he earns the moniker, the Butcher Baker. I want to talk about uh, District Attorney Frank Rothschild um, because this guy had so many... uh, great sort of sound bites about this case. And he was so affected by it. How could you not be? But when he was uh, in court for this trial, he said, before you sits a monster, an extreme aberration of a human being who has walked among us for 17 years, serving us donuts, Carrie, serving us donuts, Danish and hot coffee, all with a pleasant smile, mellow, 
mild-mannered, bespectacled Bob the Baker, a family man, a man so cunning, so clever, that his friends and acquaintances are in shock at what he now admits to before this court. Not even his wife of 20 years had any idea of his dark, evil side. And we talk about Blink in this case. And He's so just I, functioning I, in plain sight. This but I think it's is. so important to point this stuff out to say the wife didn't know, the friends didn't know, because I think there is, even if it is a very small one, a tendency to victim blame in the sense that you go, well, didn't something seem off? And some of these women said no. it didn't, some didn't. But the point being, this guy was walking around in plain sight. He was serving the cops that would later put him in jail donuts every day. It just, it's, it boggles the mind. There was something right. so off there, but people either didn't see it or wouldn't. Right. It's very shocking. It's really heartbreaking. And I mean, I'm, he, he's in jail and I love, well, well, whatever. Um, I'll say, so he gets put away in jail for 461 years, which I think is a bit larger than he served for the attempted kidnapping of Susan, right? Um, just like one year for that. But this one is 461 years. And in 1990, Robert is actually caught plotting an escape from the Lemon Creek prison in Juneau, Alaska. Um, he worked in the supply room there and authorities found an aeronautical chart, a hand knit winter hat, magazine articles on plastic explosives and correspondence with the Juneau boat broker, which I got to wonder this Juno boat broker, are you getting letters from prison being like, Hey, um, would love a boat. Could you, when do I get out, I'm going to need a boat. I'm going to know, could you actually park it by the Lemon Creek prison? I'm just curious if like you do home deliveries and it's like from the correctional facility. I'm very curious about how that correspondence went. Well, thank God he didn't, you know, get out of there or really have anything that resembled a close call getting out of there. In fact, he did spend his life there working as a jailhouse barber. Whoa. I wouldn't let that guy cut my hair, but good luck to you all. Well, these um, are men. He's cutting men's hair, which I got to say, not as risky. I would not let him near me. Not as risky sure. if it's men. He clearly... I think there's like... A, I'm so curious of his psychology against men. He has such a very clear... Um, delineation between good women and bad women. And it sounds like based on all him, men not are good one, men, Carrie, all men well, are good men. Not even that his fear of men, right? He says he was bullied. He said he had acne and he says he was worried when he went to prison. He didn't want to be in Alaska because he was worried he was going to run into someone who knew one of his victims. So, which is to say to me, this guy is like just a scared little boy. Um, although I have compassion for a boy, this guy is a scared little turd, I guess is what I would say. But I do love that. Well, he goes, that turd grew up to be a full fledged shit poop. and died at the age of 75 in prison. What I think is such, um, his death is very bittersweet because of right. course we wish this guy to be absolutely wiped from the planet. But at the same time, there's still so much mystery. We don't know how many victims he had. We don't know how many women he raped. We don't know how many women he killed. And when he died, he took with him the knowledge of, of those numbers and maybe some of those identities because not all the bodies that those marks, you know, correspond with have been found. Well, I do think that we should list all the victims. Okay. And give their names as much as what, from what we know, obviously. 
Yeah, there's, there's many a lot we don't. of information missing about many of these women. Some of them were never identified, and some of them, you know, the the police eventually had a name, but they tried to get more information. It just was not available. Maybe it was a case where somebody had come into town uh, so recently that they really didn't know too many people, and all the more reason he got away with it. But um, I wish we could tell you more about these people, but we're going to give you uh, – a little bit of what we do have. Sue Luna, we know that she was stripped, blindfolded, and sent running in the woods near the Knick River, and she was shot in the back. Her body was recovered. We have Malai Larson, and she was found, and he did confess to killing her. We have Lisa Futrell. Uh, her body was also found, and she was one of the marks on his mat. Tamara Peterson. Hansen actually told her he'd pay her $200 to model for him, like he did to Sherry Morrow, and she was actually buried near Sherry Morrow. Sherry Morrow, as we know, fought back and was shot. Her body was found, and he had kept one of her necklaces. Paula Goulding from Kona, Hawaii. She was bound, blindfolded, raped, and set on the run and was shot and killed. She had been redressed before she was buried, and he confessed to that murder. Robin Pelkey, um, this is interesting, actually. She was known for a very long time as Horseshoe Harriet or Jane Doe number three, based on where she was found. Um, she was buried in a shallow grave near Horseshoe Lake. And it is just in the last several years that they were able to identify her body. Um, she was stabbed and shot. We have Eklutna Annie, who is still unidentified, but the police are still searching for her identity even today. We have Angela Federn. She was the mother of a five-year-old girl, and her body was found a year after she went missing. Joanne Messina, her body was found by a bear, but he did admit to her murder. Teresa Watson, he confessed to he was trying to bury her, but the ground was too frozen, so he ended up throwing her body from his plane. Andrea Altieri, he admitted to her murder, but her body was never recovered. She tried to escape after he assaulted her, and he shot her. Delyn Frey was stripped naked and set free, only to be shot down. Her body was found by a pilot, and she was also the mother of a young daughter. Roxanne Eastland, he did admit to it, but her body was never recovered. There are many likely victims that uh, are ascribed to him that mm -hmm. we don't know for sure. There's Celia Van Zanten, who was a very young girl who was found frozen to death in the elements, but they do think that he had captured her and she got away from him and that, you know, she died. The elements overcame her. There is Megan Emmerich, who is still missing, and Mary Kay Phil, who also has never been found. And victims are still being identified. It's happened as recently as 2021, and there are still hopes that more will be. I did want to go back to our friend Frank Rothschild one more time and say that after this case, he actually retired from criminal law. He said of his time working on this, when you're doing that kind of work, you're seeing a portion of the world that's pretty dark. You're just so involved with all these horrible life situations, and it wears on you. And the ultimate was the Hansen case. It doesn't get any darker than that. And shortly after he tried that case, Rothschild just retired and he got the hell out of Dodge and moved to Hawaii, which is about as far away from Alaska as you can get. Whew, that was a doozy. 
That one was. That one was a doozy. If you have any comments, questions, um, anything you'd like to say, please feel free to tag hashtag crime of a lifetime on social media. We'd love to hear your thoughts and take a deep breath. And we'll see you next week. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful were the following. An episode of A&E's First Blood entitled Robert Hansen, The Butcher Baker. An Alaska Supreme Court decision in Hansen v. State and a book entitled Butcher Baker, The True Account of an Alaskan Serial Killer by Walter Gilmore and Leland E. Hale. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, A&E Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.